0: Pray with me, let's ask for the Lord's help again with the preaching and the hearing and the applying of God's word, Father in heaven we come. Again, asking really the same thing each week. This is our desire, Lord, as we set ourselves to open up the scriptures, read, hear, receive, preach, apply. This is the work of your spirit that we long for. We pray that you would increase our love for your word that that love for your word would come with a wholehearted desire to look to it as the greatest authority in existence uh, coming from your greatest heart towards us and give us hearts ready to receive and apply and do uh, what you're calling us to do and to do that with joy and gladness before you filled with faith. Have your way with us Work in our hearts for your glory this afternoon in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It was interesting uh, the shooting that had just taken place because my opening question for you this afternoon is, what do you do, how do you do when you hear about things that are wrong, bad things that happen, bad things that people do? What's the response? In your soul, what happens if you spend 20 minutes watching the news and you're informed about all the bad things, sometimes the worst things that are happening around the world, what's your response? How's your soul doing when you hear things like that? Maybe a little closer to home when things are happening locally. So now we had a shooting just down the street from us, and it feels different, doesn't When it's here versus across the country, it's a little closer to home. What about it's even closer to home, in the church, in this church, somebody does something bad, somebody does something wrong, what happens? What happens inside of you? What kind of emotion does that provoke in you? We all know that we're living in a bit of an outrage culture presently, the significant changes that have been taking place over the Last decade or two, as far as communication and information, we are given so much and made aware of so much, everything that's wrong anywhere, and everybody's opinion about everything that is going on everywhere. And outrage, in the opinion, has become the norm, almost expected. We live in that. We hear it constantly. It is increasingly expressed it is increasingly condoned even expected and this anger and rage is like a fire easily lit and in the times that we live in it seems to be more often than not even just a tool to persuade if I can stir up your rage and your anger I can move you and direct you and maybe accomplish some political ends that I might be after. But friends, what if God were calling us to something different than that? In fact, what if the power of the gospel produced something altogether different in our hearts? What if when we heard bad news, wrong things, things that normally would stir up rage or anger in our hearts. What if the power of the gospel at work in our hearts actually did something different? Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, meaning rage, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And yet, as Scotty Smith on the Gospel Coalition blog post wrote, yet we're immersed in a culture of unhinged malice, unfiltered brawling, and weaponized bitterness. Where we're going is captured in a statement that Jesus made in his wonderful Sermon on the Mount, captured really in a word, when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. On that sentence, John Stott writes this, he says, well, one might almost translate this second beatitude, happy are the unhappy, in order to draw attention to the startling paradox it contains. What kind of sorrow can it be which brings the joy of Christ's blessings to those who feel it? It is plain from the context that those here promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect. It's not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance. This is the second stage of spiritual blessing. It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and to mourn over it, or in more theological language, confession is one thing, contrition is another. We're looking at Ezra chapter 9, and as the story goes, as we've been studying through, this is the setting. God's people have so forsaken the Lord for so long that God had sent them into exile. They had been in exile for 70 years. This point in the story in Exodus chapter 9, God had already begun the returning of these exiles. He's restoring them. The, The lost sinners that had lost everything, forsaken God, lost their identity, lost their temple, lost their city lost their homes, lost their property into exile. Now God is beginning to restore and bring them back. And in our text, Ezra had just completed leading phase two, a second team, a second group of people down from Babylon, now Persia, down back to Jerusalem as God is restoring the nation of his people. Ezra, a priest, a reformer, a man of faith, a man who was devoted to the Lord and especially devoted to the word of the Lord in a particular way, led the second team of exiles back with a group of priests and Levites and temple workers in order to fully restore and make fully operational the temple. But shortly after they arrive, something wrong is brought to the attention of Ezra. Let's read it together. Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has been mixed itself with the peoples of the lands." And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has to lift, to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the land of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. To grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God. To repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now... Oh, our God, what, what, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations. They have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. And have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This chapter is designed for sin. By mourning and grieving over sin, we display God's grace to the world, and as Jesus said in the second beatitude, we actually enter into the comfort that God has promised us. As chapter 9 gives us a vision for gospel response to sin. It is counter to our culture, and yet it will show and prove the power of the gospel to the lives and in the world that we live in. And it will set us, as the people of God, on a path towards unusual comfort from God. Let me break down... The chapter a little bit, standard three points. Let's begin with identifying the sin. If we are going to learn this gospel response to sin, to wrongs that we encounter in this world, if we're going to move with that towards the comfort that the Lord has it, let's start by identifying the sin. In order to speak about our response to sin, we need to talk about sin. We talk about sin here at Sovereign Grace without apology. We want that to be the norm. We want that to be common. We want everyone to be comfortable speaking plainly, honestly, about sin in our lives, in each other, in the world. Don't do that to annoy you or aggravate you. We do that actually in the hopes and the intent is that everything that we would say about sin is actually meant to help us understand grace the assumption is that we really cannot understand one without the other we hope our intent is that everything we say about sin will in fact inform what we say about grace but grace will really not make sense unless we have a clear understanding of what sin is we don't have an understanding of grace, then, well, then there's really no point in even talking about sin. We've got no place to go, nothing to do. But the two work together. And so we cannot ignore the one and think we're embracing the other. They work together. There is this grievous sin in Ezra chapter 9, and it is a challenge. Is it not difficult to read? It's like interracial marriage. Oh my God, this is what you don't like about the Bible, right? Is that what it said? So, I I feel like this topic is like, oh man, I've got this distraction. I wish we could just not even talk about the sin and just move on to the response to the sin and yet I realize we can't do that. We've got to take an honest look at what's going on here. Let's take a little bit Closer look. Let me just say up front, Christianity does not prohibit interracial marriage. Okay? It it, it doesn't at all. What we're going to do is take a little bit of a biblical, theological view, overview of marriage and grasp what's really going on here because, yes, in fact, that was kind of the problem here. But it was a bit more layered than simply, oh, you're of the wrong race. Let's do a little biblical Theology. You know, as Christians, if you've been around for a while, been a Christian, you've heard the phrase, now we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. When God was moving his people back down to Judea and to Jerusalem specifically, they were supposed to be in Judea, but not of Judea. The first group of exiles returned, but they had not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Note, with their abominations. They did not serve God, they did not know God, they worshiped other gods, and the people of God were coming down and integrating into their culture, into those people. And when Ezra is found out about this, he quotes, and obviously they're referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first eight verses, we know that because the nations listed in our text didn't even exist in Judea at the time. It's like pulling up this phrase from Moses' writing about the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. A lot of them were not even there, but they're just saying, here's the list of nations. Just so you know what we're talking about, we're talking about the laws of Moses, which you are breaking. So it pulls in this list of nations as sort of this representation And is this really about racism? Is it bigotry? No. It's about God's redemptive plan. This is how God redeems. This is God's plan. He calls out, he sets apart and distinguishes, and then he sends back into. That's the rhythm. That's the sequence. That's how the plan of redemption works. He calls out of a rebellious world, gives new identity to the people of God, and then uses the people of God to reach the very nations that he drew them out of. He calls Abraham. Abraham, leave. Leave your home. Leave your place. Leave your family. Come out. Separate yourself. Come away. And be with me, and I will make you. I will be your God. I will make you a new nation. And then Abraham, through you, I will bring a blessing to all nations, okay? Come out, separate, distinguish, go back in with a new identity and go reach the very people that I drew you out of. That's sort of the rhythm of what God does. That's sort of the redemptive way things work. Now, in a marriage, when God arranged and instituted the first marriage, Oddly enough, we've got the first couple that he created. There's no parents. There's just Adam and Eve. And yet God institutes a marriage. And what was the phrase that he said? Because a man shall leave his father and mother. He shall leave his family and he shall cling to his wife. Now go be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Draw you out separate you unite you give you a new identity and then send you out into mission so how a marriage works a little microcosm of god's redemptive way that's why we value marriage it reflects what god does in his redemptive plan israel nation of israel you're enslaved in egypt I'm going to rescue you out. I'm going to call you out of your slavery, out of your bondage. I'm going to give you a new identity, call you a nation, make you a nation, give you your own place, and then I'm going to use you. There will be from you one, capital O, one, who will bring salvation to all the nations. All the nations will come to you. A nice rhythm of redemption. Get out from the uncleanness. Get your new set of clothes. Get your new name. Get your new identity. Get your new start. And now that you're equipped, now that you're clothed, now go. Now go and bring this good news to the people that I called you out of. When we look at marriage and we get to the New Testament, actually racially mixed marriages were common. Timothy child of a mixed marriage. And there's no prohibition mentioned in the New Testament about a mixed marriage. It's just not an issue. But the common faith is still an issue. When we see all the instructions in the New Testament, it says, marry in the Lord. If you're going to marry, marry in the Lord. In the book of Acts, though, as the gospel is spreading, as it does today, it's not uncommon that one spouse would become converted, become a Christian, and the other not. Which Obviously, so the people, the Jews at the time, surely read the book of Ezra and went to the apostle and said, oh, I became a Christian, but my spouse is not a Christian. Sounds to me like we should get a divorce. What do you think, Apostle Paul? Well, let me write a letter and address this situation so you don't assume that you should get a divorce, because you should not. If you're both pleased to stay with each other, then Stay with each other. But if the unbelieving spouse desires to leave, let him go and be free. And if you remarry, marry in the Lord. So there's sort of a New Testament overview and teaching. So we can read Ezra chapter 9 and not get distracted in thinking we need to end all kinds of marriages. So marriage becomes the focus. Interestingly enough, that's the sin, which when I first start studying, think that's distracting to this sermon. And yet it's not. It's right up the alley of what we're talking about, actually. God wanting to redeem. And the marriage is exemplifying that, displaying that. Displaying the power of God and the plan of God. So that is the sin That is a sin that's being identified here and that they're dealing with. The second point that I want to draw your attention to is is really the main thrust of this message, which is rightly framing the sin. This is the challenge. This is the challenge that we face, and this is what is common in each of our lives. When we think about sin, we think about the sin, a sin. We fixate on the specific wrong, and we start analyzing it, thinking about it. Well, is it really that wrong? We start raising questions. Is it really that bad? Uh, wait a minute. Why, why is this wrong? What if this makes somebody happy? Why, why should we say that this is wrong? So if we have a poor theology of sin, a poor understanding of sin, we'll never come into truly mourning over sin. Ezra 9 gives us a better understanding of sin it gives us the sin behind the sin. First subpoint here is seeing sin as determined by God's word. The accusation was laid out here, the scenario was laid out in Ezra chapter 9 clearly as breaking God's commands. Ezra was known to be a great teacher, and it's very likely that as he moved into the area, we're about four months in, he's arrived, he took a four-month journey to get there, he's there for four months, he started teaching. This was a man that loved to open up his Bible. Every time you're around Ezra, he's like teaching from the Scriptures, and so he's opening up. So there's very likely a bit of a revival for the Bible going on once Ezra arrives on the scene, and he's got people thinking, what did God say? What does the book say? Who are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? And all of a sudden, it comes to his attention. There's a commandment that many people have been breaking. God has said such and such, and we've got not just people, primarily, we've got leaders, all included, priests, Levites, the whole gang. They are breaking, ignoring what God has said. When Ezra goes into his mourning and he is appalled and he's sitting, who gathered around him? Those who trembled at the words of the Lord. Who understood what was going on? Who joined him? Who felt the same thing? Who experienced the same kind of mourning that Ezra did? Those who trembled at the words of God. This is where it all starts, where it all needs to start. God is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. We will never mourn, as Jesus has called us to, mourn over sin if we are merely functioning out of our own views of what is right and what is wrong, our own opinions, our own values. Sins are sins because of what God has said. Now, granted, it is true all sins are wrong, but not all sins are as bad as every other sin necessarily. That's true. But our starting point for understanding sin is not, cannot be, well, what do you think is wrong? Do you think that's bad? I don't think that's so bad. I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. It has to come back to the Lord, to His Word. That's where it all begins. Second thing is seeing sin as primarily faithlessness. Did you notice that when I read through the chapter? Once the thing is stated, marrying pagans, practicing abominations, that's the appalling sin that they're talking about. But once that's stated, each time it gets mentioned, this faithlessness. I don't know if we think about sin as faithlessness, but that changes the way we think about sin. This is to expose the heart behind the sin, not just the activity. Is that activity wrong? How bad is it? Let's evaluate that. No. Ezra is saying, think about it as faithlessness. It is an issue of the heart. It is an issue of faith. It is an issue of trusting or not trusting the Lord. I don't know if any of you had a chance to read Rosario Butterfield's testimony. She's written several books, a wonderful testimony of how a pastor named Ken Smith led her to the Lord, met with her. She was a feminist, queer theorist, Writing was going to write a book against Christianity, calls up this local pastor to meet with him thinking she's going to get fuel for her book, to debunk Christianity, and he begins to defriend her, meet with her, talk openly with her, and they speak for a couple years. And she ends up getting in her Bible, and reading this Bible, and the spirit of God begins to work in her. Her life was totally transformed and regenerated one of the comments she made in her testimony was that ken never took her sexuality her opinions about sexuality as being the biggest issue he kept drawing attention back to her faith what she believed what she trusted in that was the major issue and that was the doorway in and the opening, to think in terms, not just, do you do bad things? Did you do a bad thing? Was it that bad? It's not thinking about the sin. It's thinking about, is it, is it faithlessness? Are you trusting the Lord? Is there an aspect of faith that is operating beneath it, or is it faithlessness? I don't believe what God says. I don't trust what God says. I'm not going to do what God says. Faithlessness at work. So not so much focusing on the action per se, but the heart that drives it. The presence of faith or its absence. Next, seeing sin as contrary to the new identity. Did you catch the phrase, the holy race is being disrupted, corrupted, What they're doing is they're they're dabbling with our identity as a people. God separating out, establishing a new identity. They were not holding to that new identity. The holy race was getting mixed because they were participating in local abominations, local worship, local worship contrary to the worship of the Lord. And God is saying, it's not who you are. I called you out to be my people, exclusively my people that worship only me, and I'm your God, and you're my people. You are to cleave to me, and I'm to be your God, and we're supposed to have this very exclusive worship relationship here. And yet you're mixing it with others other gods, other abominations in the culture. If you're here and you're a Christian, you need to know that God is calling us to be distinct. It means something to be the people of God. It looks different. Now, we could do what some groups do and say, well, let's all dress a certain way. Okay, ladies? Long dresses all the way to the floor all the time, okay? That's what we're going to do, and then everybody will see, and everybody will know, but no. But there are distinctions. There are distinctions that are visible, noticeable, and effective. We live differently. We think differently. We respond differently. We mourn and cry when there's a shooting before the outrage Christians, when it comes to sex, strictly exclusive. When it comes to money, unusually generous. In the eyes of others, probably careless. Different values, distinct as the people of God. There are things that prove who we are, how we live, how we talk how we respond, how we treat one another, how we respond to trouble. In fact, many times in our Christian walk, that's how we discern what to do, how to respond. We ask the question, who am I? As a follower of Christ, who am I? As a new creation in Christ, who am I? Well, that answering that question will inform, oh, how am I going to respond in this situation? because we begin living out of this new identity. Even though we catch ourselves at times, oh, I'm living out of my old identity. Oh, I feel the pull of my old identity, but I stop and I say, wait, wait a minute, who am I? Oh, we're the people of God. We've been, we've been set free. We've been, we've been moved out, taken out of that old life, that old way, now given new life, which produces a new way to live Another point coming out of this chapter about understanding really the nature of sin and how to reframe it and how to understand it is to see it in contrast with the goodness of God. Did you notice that in Ezra's prayer? Oh, God, as a people, we failed miserably. We were in a dire predicament. Because we failed, we forsook you. We've been in exile for 70 years. We lost everything, and it was our own fault. You warned us time after time after time, and we just we wouldn't yield. We pushed the prophets aside, and finally, you took it all away from us. And yet, now, you're giving it back you're giving it back. You're giving in this, this moment of reprieve. You're reviving something in us. You're, you're showing us steadfast love. When I look at our track record, all I see is our failure. All I see is your faithfulness. And yet now here we are again getting what we don't deserve. You've, you've, not, you've not treated us actually according to our iniquities. Had you done that, it would have been much worse. We would not be here today had the Lord treated us according to our iniquities. Yet you've shown us steadfast love. And now we're here. We're, we're, we're getting restored to our homeland. We're becoming a people again. The temple's been rebuilt. Families are, are, are moving into town and, and we're getting established again as a nation. We don't deserve to be a nation. Because our whole identity as a nation, we forsook. And yet today, we look around. It's it's an amazing story. Why would a Persian king say, oh, people of Israel, here's a bunch of money. Why don't you go back and start your own nation? And yet the Lord put it on his heart. It's precisely what happened. They were experiencing so much of the grace of God. And so that's Ezra's plea, his cry. He sees the contrast. He sees the goodness of God. And he says, and so how? How could we, in light of that, now forsake your commandments again? Total reframing of sin. If I said to you, look, I told a little white lie. Did you notice all my chosen adjectives? It's little, it's insignificant, it's white, of no consequence. I told a lie, but I just wanted to just make sure you all understood. There's no ill intent, no bad effect. It's not a bad thing, Okay. Everybody's clear. You don't have to worry about me. Nothing's wrong here. But then I stop and begin to reframe. So I told somebody something that wasn't true. Someone who was created in God's image, who deserves my respect because they've been created in God's image, and I told them something that wasn't true. And that person was a fellow Christian, brother, sister in the Lord. And so, someone for whom Christ died, I told an untruth to. I did that before the God of truth, who did nothing to me except speak truth to me, who called me to be a person of truth like him. The truth what set me free and yet somehow in light of all these things I still it still came out of my mouth and I lied do you see how different when we stop just fixating on the sin itself and start thinking through all the implications behind that telling a little white lie what an act of faithlessness to do such a thing and yet how much do we accommodate and say doesn't sound like a big deal to me no harm no foul no blood no problem It's okay. You can read about the intermarriage that took place here and think, wow, that sounds a little strange to me. I don't see the problem with that. But there's much more going on than that. And when we begin to start reframing the realities of sin, thinking in terms of faithlessness, thinking in terms of our identity and who we are and what God has done for us, the contrast of the goodness that we've received from the Lord, the grace that we live and breathe and experience so much. We start taking all those things in light of that. Then all of a sudden, sin takes on an entirely different picture. If we can reframe sin like Ezra chapter 9, helps us reframe sin. I think that will help us mourn over sin. Because I was thinking about us, and I thought Jesus says we should mourn over sin. I'm thinking, well, okay, how do we get there? Why would we mourn over sin when we just don't? Okay, I make you feel something that you don't feel? Can I make you feel sad about something that you simply don't feel sad about? Well, well, the pathway there is to just really kind of peel back the layers and pull the curtain open and see what's really going on here. And now all of a sudden, that emotion begins to come because we begin to realize what has actually taken place. We move beyond the mere action. And we see the faithlessness of it. Third point is finding God's comfort. Okay, so to go back to John Stott, how do we make sense out of this unhappiness being our happiness? Okay, if, if, if we can make progress, by God's grace we make progress towards mourning over sin, how do we find, how do we get the comfort that's promised in the Beatitudes about this. Now, for this, I went to a Puritan friend to get some answers here. Jeremiah Burroughs, 1600s, England, Puritan, pastor. Uh, Maybe you're more, if you're familiar with the name, you might be familiar with the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, wonderful book that he wrote. He wrote another book called Gospel Fear, and in that book, it's really a series of sermons, and one of the sermons was focused on the verse in Isaiah 66 that says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Okay? Common phrase from our text. Where does it all start? All started with trembling. At His Word. Let's let's just give a little definition of trembling so that we don't misunderstand each other. To tremble at God's Word, what we're talking about is that we view and understand and accept God's Word as the highest authority. That you read your Bible with an absolute assurance that it is true and that what it says will, in fact, come to pass. That whatever anyone else might say whatever other opinions you might have or hear others that have what God has said will always be and forever be the final word. If that's your understanding of your Bible, you've got something of this trembling at God's word, which we need. So Jeremiah Burroughs lays out, like a good Puritan, a nice list for us of how we find the comfort when we mourn. Over sin, or specifically when we tremble at God's word. If you tremble at God's word, then, his first point, God has begun to help you see the glory in His word. Okay, this should comfort you. If you tremble at God's word, what that means is God is helping you to see the glory in His word. Okay, so at some point in the past, it was just a book. At some point in the past, it was just words on a page. It meant nothing. It was a book like any other book. Maybe you considered it. Maybe you read it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't care. But it wasn't to you what it is. But when the trembling comes into your soul, then you know that the Spirit is working in you to help you to see the glory in the Word. That's a comfort. If you can see the glory in the book, that's a work of God. And this, Burroughs says, is a great mercy to us. Secondly, he says, well, if you tremble at his word, then because you already feel the threats upon your soul, then you don't need to fear them. Okay? Okay. Here's the logic of the old Puritan here. If you read God's word and you tremble at it, like Pilgrim, at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, says, oh, I read in the book there's a day of judgment coming, and it causes my heart to fear, and so I must flee and find the grace of God. Okay, so he's already trembling. The the threats of the day of judgment rest heavy on his heart, and God... According to Burroughs here, saying, because you already feel the threats, you've already given me the glory of the word. Therefore, you do not need to fear the actual threat in the future, because you've tasted it in this moment. Now, I don't know how many of you have raised kids and tried to teach them and train them things, but you have moments where you're trying to convince them of the rightness of something or the wrongness of something or the badness of something. And they don't always get it right away. But sometimes they do. And sometimes when they get it and you see it in their eyes and you can tell from their response and their demeanor, oh, now I understand. What I did was very wrong. As a parent, mission accomplished. You, you don't need to do anything more to discipline them or train them. They they got it. They they got the lesson. They realized the truth. They realized the glory of what was right or what was or the 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 pain of what was wrong, and so they get it. And, and Jeremiah Burroughs is saying the same thing. Look, if you, if you read the Bible and it causes you to tremble, then God has already gotten the glory in your life for what he's pronounced in his word. And his logic says, well, no, therefore, you don't have to fear the actual threat of the threatens the threatenings that are there in the scripture. Next one, if you tremble at his word, then you can be assured that every word of salvation is intended for you. If you have that sense of God's word and you see it for what it is, and there's a trembling there in your heart, then that is evidence and assurance that the words of hope and the words of salvation are for you. So one of the clearest and most powerful evidences of a genuinely converted heart. You read the Bible differently. And you see God's face behind every page. When you read it, it's as if you hear his voice saying it. You are receiving these words, knowing that they have come, breathed out from the very mouth of God. And when that trembling is in your heart, that becomes the assurance that all the words of promise and salvation belong to you. If you tremble at his word, you're promised the comforts Proverbs 13, 13, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. When your heart trembles at God's word, the promise is salvation is yours, reward is yours. That is the evidence that the word is applying, being applied to you. Next point, if you tremble at God's word, God accepts this, even more than outward obedience. A hypocrite can perform right acts, and none of us obeys God perfectly, but God places high regard on the trembling heart. Burrow says, there is more godliness in the trembling heart than in the work of the hand. A heart that trembles at his word is looked upon with more favor than an impressive resume or a good report card. We cannot, we will not be saved by our good works. But a heart that trembles at God's word is evidence of faith that is evidence of grace at work in our lives. Another point he makes if you tremble at God's word is it is a sign of friendship with God and assurance of knowing the mind of the Lord. Proverbs 25:14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. A, a trembling at God's word is how we come into gaining the mind of the Lord, how we understand God's will. It brings us into a, a, a friendship. With God. His last point what causes you to tremble today is what everyone will tremble at on that day. There's coming a day when everyone, everyone, every living being will tremble at God's word. But for many, that day will be a terrible trembling. It will become a terrible day. But for those who tremble today, that will become a glorious day of comfort. That will be our day of our greatest comfort. And we will know that second beatitude in its fullest on that day. Because today, if your heart trembles at God's word, that day, will be the day of comfort. Worship band, you can come on up. We're going to close in just a minute. So how do we respond when something goes wrong? How do we respond when something bad happens? The people of God are called to something altogether different than our outrage culture that we live in. And it begins with trembling. At God's word. From there we can rightly frame and understand sin. For what it is in such a way that. It leads us to a first response of grief. And when we gain this grieving over sin. This mourning over sin. We set ourselves on the path. To our greatest comfort. Apostle Paul wrote to the churches, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Ezra chapter 9 is here to help us to put in our hearts a right kind of mourning over sin. And how would it be if Christians, if churches had that kind of a response to the wrongs, the evils, the injustices? That might not be the sum total of our response, but if that were the starting point, if we started by mourning, by crying, by grieving, I think we could change the world. I think we could be an unusual gospel witness especially in our day and age so let's ask for the spirit's help let's stand together father help us help us hear this word and work by your spirit in our souls i have so much to rejoice over so much grace we pray that there'd be a grace at work in our lives that would Cause the response of our hearts when we hear of tragedy, when we hear of wrong, when we're sinned against, when we ourselves sin, that our first impulse would be to grieve, to see it for what it is, and to come to you humbly in repentance and to receive grace, forgiveness, a new life for your glory. Amen.